0: Well, this morning we come in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews, uh, to chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 17, 18, and 19. So we'll be considering together with the Lord's help, chapter 7, verses 17 to 19. We've just read the whole chapter. It begins with the repetition of that verse from Psalm 110 in verse 17 for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you were to cast your eye as far back as the beginning of time, the days of Noah, and then trace your eye forward all through the annals of history, you would discover many notable occasions in which there was a sea change, in which there was uh, a paradigm shift of notable proportions, right? There are lots of spaces in history where we can observe that sort of thing but none compare none could ever compare to the transformation and change that took place with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that which was depicted from the fall in that first gospel promise what that which was decreed from eternity past and after 4000 long years actually came to fruition in the fulfillment of all the prophecies and promises, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his coming, with the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, we have a cataclysmic change that that transforms everything in terms of history, in terms of the church and the kingdom and the covenant and all that belongs to the things of God. And so here, the Apostle Paul in this epistle to the Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has come in this second section of chapter 7 to his most difficult task, the one which he gave a prelude to at the beginning of, of chapter 5. What was that difficult task? He was to persuade believing Jews that God had set aside the entire ceremonial system which he himself had appointed in the days of Moses. So to persuade these believing Jews that Jesus had set aside the entire superstructure of of the ceremonial system, with all its apparatus, a system which God himself had appointed in the days of Moses. And so the Lord had appointed it, and it had continued for 1,500 long years, century after century after century after century, 15 centuries The people of God, the church of God, the believers, those who constituted that mixed multitude within the house of Israel. They were bound by God to this ceremonial law and its ceremonial ordinances of worship. And the Lord held up blessings and curses according to their conformity and obedience to what he had appointed. And now the Apostle Paul has come in this epistle to the to, to the Hebrews to persuade them that that which had been so fundamental, so integral to their daily life and to their whole identity as a people had been set aside. And that was necessary because from the beginning of chapter one, we've seen this growing momentum. Right. The momentum uh, that builds with regards to the unfolding of of the supremacy of jesus christ and it is because of his supremacy it is because of the superiority of the lord jesus christ that these things are true that the ceremonial system reaches its expiration date fulfills all that god intended with it and it is cast aside in order that christ who was depicted in it by shadows might in his coming receive all of the glory honor and praise. We'll note three things as we seek to unpack these three verses uh, this morning. Three things. The title of our sermon is A Better Hope. But we begin, first of all, with the fact that the ceremonial law was abolished. The ceremonial law was abolished. Verse 17 For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before we see that the ceremonial law was abolished so we have this massive obstacle this massive hurdle in the the minds of the original audience right the the difficulty the difficulty was really a test of their faith would they believe would they would they believe the word of god what the word of god says What the Old Testament had taught, as well as what the New Testament was now teaching. Would they believe all that is true about the Lord Jesus Christ or not? And so that test of faith comes. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is set before them. And here's the fact of the matter. The overwhelming, vast majority of Jews did not believe it. Indeed, they rejected the message of Jesus Christ. They rejected all that he was and all that he accomplished. In doing so, they rejected their own scriptures. And in their rejection through unbelief of all that is disclosed to us of Christ, they perished in their sins. So that's what's at stake. The vast majority of the Jews, in fact, did not give heed to all that we're learning in hebrews and elsewhere the supremacy of jesus christ is what is at stake and with that the salvation or ruin of the church the salvation or ruin of the church hangs on these on these points that are that are set before us and so to establish this truth in the in the hearts of all of God's people, here is Paul writing again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He descends into detailed argument. Right, He wants to ensure that consciences are grounded in the scriptures themselves. And so he repeats yet again this quotation from Psalm 110. This is now something of a refrain in all that he's saying. He keeps calling them back to the text and he's saying, here, this is what God says. The Lord himself told us that the, that the Messiah, who would be the son of David from the tribe of Judah, would, him be, would himself be a priest, not after the order of Levi and Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, a priest that would supersede and surpass that of, of Aaron. And so he repeats it. You think, well, you know. Do we need to repeat it? It's, it's true. We all need it repeated. You know, moms tell their children the same thing 20 times because 19 times really isn't enough. And we are not much different. We need to hear it over and over to have the word of God drilled into the very depths of, of our hearts. And you know the reaction, of course, of the unbelieving Jews. We know that the, the thought of what the Apostle Paul is, is saying here about the disannulling of the law is absolutely abhorrent. You see it in the book of Acts. I mean, there are the Jews and they are rabid. I mean, they are, you know, they're on fire at the time when you, you get to Acts 6 and 7 with Stephen, right? They're, they're furious because they're saying, this man is saying that Moses is being set aside, that the law is being set aside. Well that we will not tolerate. Stone him to death. Right? There's there's serious animosity to this, this concept. So he repeats Psalm 110 here in verse uh, seventeen. And really verse seventeen is the completion of the sentence that began back in, in verse 15 where it says, and, it, and it, is far, it is yet far more evident. And that was a demonstration of what was asserted in verse 11. And so it's saying that, that the Lord came to us in his word in the Old Testament, he pointed to another priest even greater than Aaron. And all of this came better than Aaron, replacing Aaron. All of this came Uh, by way of, of revelation in the Old Testament. And so there you have it. Think about it. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. There in David's day, at the very time when the Levitical priesthood was enjoying its heyday, was enjoying its heights in terms of its importance and so on and so forth, in that very day, God comes to his people and says, all of this is temporary. There's another priest coming who's going to be far better and is going to lay aside Aaron and all that comes with him. Well, as we saw earlier, the termination of the priesthood is tied to the setting aside of the whole system of ceremonial worship. So in verse 19, um, or, or rather in verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, really takes us back to verse 12. Because in verse 12, he had said, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So now he's coming back to that. In verse 12, he uses the word change. Here in verse 18, he uses a much stronger word. He says it has been disannulled. It has been abrogated. It has been abolished. It has been set aside. It has been laid aside entirely, put away. That's what disannulling is. That this... This ceremonial law was temporary, was designed from the beginning to be temporary. As we'll see in chapter 9, verse 10, until the time of Reformation. It was there until the time of Reformation. It was a means to an end. It served a temporary means of depicting colorfully, graphically, uh, beautifully who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. But his arrival means that those depictions are no longer appropriate. And the fact is that this was clear in the Old Testament. It's not as if we come to the New Testament and it is like shocker of all shockers. There is no indication or precedent for this in the Old Testament. That's not true. Not only do we have the repeated appeal here to Psalm 110 for that reason but there are many others. Without leaving leaving the Psalms, you can see how in the Old Testament they understood very clearly the distinction between what was moral and what was ceremonial. The Old Testament believer could see the distinction between laws that were ceremonial and typical and laws that were moral and permanent and transcultural and, and so on. So in Psalm 51, verse 16, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Right? David's saying, I, I realize these outward ordinances aren't the thing, right? That what's needed is actually the moral principle, the, the real thing within the soul, that what's sought is not actually these these ordinances. So you go to the you go to the, the psalm before, psalm 50, verses 9 and following. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats of thy folds. He goes on to say, you know, look, all the cattle are mine. I know all the fowls. They're all mine. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine. Will I eat the, the flesh of bulls or of, drink the, the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving. Pay thy vows. Under the Most High, right? There's built into the the mind of the Old Testament believer an awareness, not not obviously not with the clarity that we have in the New Testament, but there was some shadowy awareness of these these sorts of distinctions. You get the same thing in Psalm 40, verse six, and we could go elsewhere. But then you you know you go back to before David, and there's Samuel, and Samuel speaking to Saul in that well-known passage. The, the rebuke that comes to him in First in Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel said, "Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. to hearken than the fat of rams. right? You see these distinctions. Now, we could multiply this. We read from Isaiah chapter one for this reason. And, you know, we've expanded that recently in our afternoon services within you know, the last few months or something. There in Isaiah 1, he's making the same point. He's saying, I actually, because you don't have the heart of the matter, and you're misusing these ordinances that I've appointed, I abhor them. The Lord is saying, I abhor the very things that I have appointed. Right? That sticks in the mind of the Jew to, 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 real, to see the, 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 the distinctions that are being made. Or you come to Micah chapter 6 verses 6 and 7, and you see again depicted this this same point. And if that's not enough, the Lord prophesies of the day when all of this would happen in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of the abominations, he will make it desolate even until the consumption and so on. So he's depicting of a day coming when all of this would be would be laid aside. So my point here, and I don't need to, I think, burden you any further. My point is that we find in the Old Testament self, beyond Psalm 110, the evidence for the fact that the, the ceremonial system would indeed be temporary. Now we come to the New Testament, and in Jesus' own ministry, he's signaling this and in, in John chapter 4, when he's meeting with the woman at the well, he's giving indicators that there's changes coming. The place of worship will no longer be significant. Jerusalem will no longer be the seat, as it were, of God's visible presence in the world. You turn into the book of Acts and it becomes extremely clear because there the apostles are implementing all these changes. As the gospel comes to the Gentiles, they're told you're not under the burden of of these ceremonies and you see them being laid aside we come to the epistles Galatians 4 Colossians 2 Ephesians 2 we can multiply examples beyond that of of Hebrews 7 8 9 and 10 all of them in unison telling us the same thing those ceremonial uh, laws and 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 worship were were weak and beggarly elements they were shadows we're told right they were signs of what was to come. This is the kind of language that the Lord uses. So in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that was fulfilled. All of that was accomplished. And so when did the ceremonial system get set aside? It got set aside in the, the accomplished and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who 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 was depicted in all of those ceremonies and who actually brought them to their culmination. And then we see it reinforced with the, the appointment of new, New Testament, New Covenant, simple ordinances of worship that replace them. So that's spelled out in both the Gospels and the Epistles. And then you come in Acts and the Epistles, and it's declared matter-of-factly that these ceremonies have been set aside. And all of that gives us the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. All of that is, is showing us Old and New Testament. This is laid aside. But then the Lord follows his word with his work, namely his work of providence. And he puts the capstone on all of this when in 70 AD he sends the Romans in to ransack and destroy, demolish, completely obliterate forever the temple and all of its stuff. And so, in 70 a d the Lord in Providence removes it from the face of the earth, and the Jews since then have never had it it 's taken away they don't have the sacrifices anymore they don 't have the temple anymore, they don't have all of the the priestly uh, uh, accruments that went with that anymore. All that stuff is, is gone. The Lord brought down the hammer and removed it uh, uh, completely so both in word and, and providence so the You know, we've used various illustrations. You have the illustration of a children's picture book, right? Children, you open your book, and there's like big, colorful pictures all over the page. And then maybe, you know, C-spot run at the bottom, you know, some just few brief words. But then as you become an adult, you end up with with books that are crammed full of words, sometimes squint print, and no pictures, right? It's moving from childhood to adulthood. And this is the picture, you know, in the Old Testament, the Lord came to his people under age, with lots of color, smells, and bells, and sights, and sounds, and all that came with it. Graphic imagery to help convey to them as they looked through the shadows. Who would this Messiah be? What would he do? But now that he's come, the picture book, the childish things can be be and should be set aside. Or you think in terms of you know, the, the language Paul uses is a shadow. And we're also said that it's a that the Old Testament ceremonies were a picture. Both shadow and picture point to a person. So think of, a, you know, a person, their fiancé is on the other side of the world and has been for months. And they've held on to their picture. And so they've been, you know, looking at their picture every day and, you know, missing them and so on. The fiancé shows up, comes, returns. And now what? You, you never look at them. You're always looking at their picture. You know, you turn your back and you're always looking. At, that would be offensive for many good reasons. You don't enjoy their presence. You're looking at the picture. Right? That's a problem. That's a massive affront to, to, to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And so you can use lots of illustrations that depict this. But the point is this. The ceremonies pointed to Christ. And it is Christ who saves The ceremonies pointed to Christ who saves. So to turn from Christ to the ceremonies is to first of all reject the very purpose for why they were given. That's stupid. To turn from Christ to the ceremonies is to reverse their whole purpose. But more importantly, to turn from Christ to the ceremonies is to turn from salvation. Because it is Christ who is the Savior. Only he saves. And they served as a crutch for a time, but it's in his accomplished redemption that the elect have their, their, their salvation. And in him, and in him alone. Well, what do we see from this? We see a few things. One, we see, you know, the problem oftentimes is not just in one's head. It's, it's also in one's heart. It's good for us to realize this, right? People are complicated. We're complicated. People aren't computers, you think, well, if I just, you know, plug in the right formula, here's the right argument, presto, you get the, the result you want. Right argument, boom. You know, as if people were only brain. And that's not true. And so there's all sorts of layers of complexity. And argument is indispensable in, in terms of persuading, persuading people, but it's not, it's not the only thing. So Paul begins in chapter six and says, "You got a heart problem. You're dull of hearing, and I got to address that throughout chapter six, so that you're prepared to then hear the 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 truth, propositional truth that you need to hear. You need to you need to repent. You need to be called to faith and perseverance, and so on. Uh, first, right then then he gives them the biblical basis and lays out the arguments. And these details should not be viewed as dry." Because we're talking about truth and the, the truth is in the details. And the details are needed because consciences are too precious to deal haphazardly with. Consciences have to have convictions which are rooted in the word, in the Bible. And that requires helping people see the biblical basis for why they should believe what they believe. The conscience is held captive to the word of God. So that's helpful. Just watching the apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy spirit. We, we learn something from watching him and how he's addressing these complex naughty questions and, and difficulties that, that the Lord's people are facing. But furthermore, we learn to contend for necessary truths that are under attack, right? There are truths that in different times and periods receive greater degree of attention and attack, which are undermined more than others. And we need to be clear, it's all Christ's truth. And and no one is in a position to say, okay, well, we're going to look at this body of truth, all of which belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to discriminate and decide what's important and what's what's not important. And then conclude that we can just give away some of it. It's not ours to give, as I said so many times. You know, the truth of Christ, the crown rights of Christ, the things, they are Christ's. And we are not in a position, ever in a position, we are never free to give away what belongs to Him, to dismiss what belongs to Him. And Satan comes and he's subtle. He comes as an angel of light. He doesn't come blowing a trumpet in a, you know, dressed up as a dragon all the time. He'll come as an angel of light. He'll come as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it requires, therefore, as we saw back at the end of chapter 5, discernment and maturity and the exercise of our senses in the things of God. Well, here in this this portion of of chapter 7, the doctrine that's being clearly communicated is that the ceremonial law was abolished, period. Bar none. It was abolished in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly... The ceremonial law was weak. The ceremonial law was weak. Verse 18. For, verily, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. For the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. And so there's this disannulling why. For the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. So, if, if anyone is clinging to these Old Testament ceremonies, you've missed the point of the ceremonies altogether. Those who want to bring back the, you know, let's celebrate the Old Testament feasts, or, you know, let's bring back in some of these ordinances, and we have priests, and we have bells and whistles, and vestments, and all this other stuff, instruments and whatnot. You've missed the point of the ceremonies altogether. The very nature of the, cer- of the ceremonies proves that they were never the end. They were never the end. They were always a means to a higher end. There, there was something weak and unprofitable in and of themselves. Why? Because the ceremonies by nature, by design, by their function were weak and unprofitable. How so? How so? Because they were incomplete by themselves. Or as this passage says, for they could make nothing perfect. They in themselves could make nothing perfect. These things could never take away sins. They could never wash away sins. Right? They, there was a designed imperfection in them. They were intended to be shadows. There's something shadowy about shadows, right? You, you get the, you can look at a person's shadow and you can see their f- general form. You can see some features, perhaps if they're moving their gait, you can see the direction they're going, but a shadow is a shadow. When the person comes, you see all the detail, the color, the variety, the texture, the clothes that they're wearing, all the different the facial expressions, all sorts of things, right? Become vivid in contrast to the shadow. There was designed imperfection. You say, well, why would the Lord do that? Why would he give the ceremonial laws and ceremonial ordinances in worship and worship built, uh, with built-in imperfections in this regard? The answer is easy. Because their whole purpose was to magnify Jesus Christ. Right? The whole purpose is not for them to be viewed as the great and glorious and permanent thing, But actually, they're just a servant, a stepping stone, a a, a stool that is pointing the backdrop that is pointing to, to setting in the foreground the glory, the surpassing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was for magnifying his preeminence. So the ceremonies had weakness. They were without strength. They couldn't meet, in themselves, they could never meet the needs of those godly, believing Old Testament Israelites. They could never meet the needs of themselves, right? We'll see this. We come to chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Right? This is the whole theme. So the ceremonies couldn't meet the needs, The ceremonies in and of themselves could never take away sins. They could never bestow life on the person who brought the sacrifice. They could never provide a heavenly inheritance. They could never remove guilt. They could never cancel the curse. They could never satisfy sin. Slaying an animal in and of itself does none of that. Much less any of the other attending ordinances that accompanied it. Weakness. Unprofitableness. Unprofitableness. It was there by divine appointment in order to create expectancy, to build a sense of expectation, the state of expectancy. After all, Adam falls. The Lord could have that split second sent the Redeemer as a Savior. Right? And brought about the salvation. He didn't. He, he, instead, he sent a promise. A very shadowy promise. In Genesis 3.15. And then time passed. Lots of time passed. And there's all sorts of th- twists and turns and ups and downs in the unfolding of the history of redemption. Eventually, we get to chapter 12 of Genesis and Abraham and then Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and after him, Moses and in all of these stages, there's all sorts of things that are unfolding in and David and, and it's becoming a little clearer. The Lord gives more revelation of who Christ would be and of the gospel and all that he would accomplish. And we get more and more and more. And with each more comes more anticipation. A sense of desire, a sense of longing and so on. So that for 4,000 years, the Lord leaves his people suspended, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the background for the full blaze of all of the perfections of the incarnate Son that would appear in the fullness of time, according to God's appointment, who would appear in the flesh in this world and would accomplish all that God had promised and bring these things to pass. What a, what a glorious thing. We saw it in, in Romans 8 as well, verse 3 for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh god sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for his sin condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit and so you know all that get up the, pri- the priestly vestments and their anointing oil and and all of that right that in itself showed, none of this actually clothes us in perfect righteousness. None of this is a ticket to heaven. You know, the burning of the incense in and of itself doesn't cause prayers to be made fragrant spiritually before the Lord. You know, the sacrificing of animals, slitting the throat, draining the blood, cutting them up and burning them on the altar and so on, doesn't take away sin by itself. Right? These were means, they were pointers, they were, they were all pointing really away from themselves to the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So they're incomplete in themselves, that's how they're weak. Severed from the Lord Jesus Christ, these ordinances are powerless. And so what did the Old Testament saint do then? They came to these ordinances by faith. And they looked not at them, but through them. And they understood this, this lamb is beautiful and seemingly, without blemishes it is, it's unable to actually cleanse. Its blood can't cleanse my sin. But this is a picture of what God will provide in the coming of the Messiah. They, by faith, looked through the sacrifices to Christ. You say, well, how do you know that for sure? Because the Bible tells us for sure. You know, read he- Hebrews 11, if just one chapter is all, all, all you can hand, you know, do for the time. Hebrews 11 would work. Abraham saw Christ. Moses saw Christ. They were looking at he who was invisible. Their, their faith, the object of their faith, was the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to go back to the ceremonies is a catastrophic diversion. A sinful provocation that basically says Christ is inadequate. He isn't good enough in his person. And all that he's accomplished isn't good enough. And so we have to go back to that which is broken and inadequate. That's a provocation to God that angers him. To go back to these these ceremonies. They looked through them to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We have the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer need them. We look upon him himself as he's revealed to us in his word, in the New Testament scriptures. And so to turn from him, to go back to that, is to turn from the one who is salvation to something less. Right? We have heavenly realities. I made this point last week. Why would we exchange heavenly realities for earthly forms? You know, the priestcraft of the Roman Church with all of its truckload of garbage that they bring in, the smells and bells and whistles and incense and vestments and sacrifices and all the other stuff they do. Right? This is this runs diametrically opposed to the gospel and diametrically opposed to the glory of Christ and diametrically opposed to the heavenly realities that Christ has purchased for us to enjoy. Indeed, our, our, our confession is, is, is helpful on this point because the confession, when it goes to treat the doctrine of Christian liberty, includes, as part of the doctrine of Christian liberty, freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. We have been set free from that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unsatisfactory because it was shadowy, we have the person burdensome because it was limited in so many ways as, as, as Paul's going to go on to make uh, demonstrate in in verses that follow this. And so we see the, the ceremonial the ceremonial law was was weak, but that brings us thirdly to a better hope, verse 19 again, a better hope for the law made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto god but the bringing in of a better hope did that is did make perfect this better hope did make perfect right you children you'll learn about your adjectives right words adjectives describe nouns and so you know you have a good boy good is the adjective but there are different types of adjectives Right, You can have comparative adjectives. So not just good, but better. And you can have superlative adjectives. Not just good, not just better, but best. Right? These are degrees. Here we're told we're given a better hope. This is something so much, infinitely better than, than what was known under the Old Testament. And when, it, when he says hope, this better hope, hope, the word hope, stands for the object of hope here. Right? It's not speaking in the first instance about our experience of hope, but the object of hope, the thing that is hoped for. The thing hoped for is what makes perfect. That should be obvious to you. Your experience of hope is not what makes things perfect. right? It's, it's Christ who makes things perfect. So the object of hope is Christ. The object of hope, the thing hoped for, is the gospel. Is this work of of salvation. It's the promise that unfolded from Genesis 3.15. You know to chapter 12 and 17. And all the way through the Old Testament scripture. Jesus tells us in John 8. That Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day. And he saw it. Though from a distance. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1. That the prophet searched diligently. I mean painstakingly trying to peer into the very prophecies that they were delivering to understand and to see as much as they possibly could about all that we now enjoy in the coming of of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was Simeon sitting, as it were, on the cusp. Christ is brought into the temple, and we're told he is the one waiting for the consolation of Israel. He, like many other believing Jews, they're waiting expectantly. And it was the same. All them that looked for the redemption of Jerusalem. There were those who were looking and looking and looking away. Looking their eyes dry, as it were. For the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as we read in, in Titus 2, we have the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has come. And this better hope has secured all that is absolutely perfect and complete and in need of no supplement or in in need of, of, of nothing else to be added to it. The abrogation of the ceremonial law does not leave us with less. It leaves us with more. You say, well, the ceremonial law is being taken away. Something's being lost. No, we're not left with less. We're left with more, infinitely more, much more. We have something far better, infinitely better, because we have Christ Himself. We have the completion, the accomplishment of redemption. It's done, it's finished, it's secured, it's completed, never to be repeated. Now we have, as a consequence, heavenly realities, so that we enjoy things that are way beyond the imagination of what the Old Testament could enjoy. Their imagination was set on edge by looking at this glorious temple and the Holy of Holies and and all the ordinances and sacrifices and incense and all that stuff. Their imagination was enlivened. It was set on edge. But it's beyond their wildest imaginations. All of that was a picture of heavenly things. And now we have the heavenly things themselves. Not the earthly props. Those earthly props pointed up. But now we're brought up. Into them. Brought up into the possession of them. Brought up into the enjoyment of them. By nature, we're alienated from the life of God. Separated, barred from the Lord. But what do we read in verse 19? A better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. We who were alienated and far off we have been brought to draw nigh to god we have been as it were told elsewhere we have been made nigh by the blood of the lord jesus christ that we have access by one spirit unto the father you see the old testament believer had hope they had hope well-grounded hope gospel hope Godly hope, but we have a better hope, far better. Think about it. If you're an Old Testament believer, you go to the temple, all this gospel, right? It's just, everything is, is, is slam full of theological significance. Everything that's being portrayed in front of you, this grand storybook full of gospel content. So you're being inundated with this graphic, you know, gospel depiction under the the Old Testament ceremonies. But there, there you are on the Day of Atonement and you know, the highest and holiest day of the whole year where the gospel is perhaps most vividly set forth at any other time for the Old Testament people. I'm inclined to think to myself as I watched all of that, there he goes, the high priest. This is it. One man, one day, one time a year. And not without the shedding of blood. He's going into the inner sanctum. He's going into the holy of holies. The most holy place. He's going into the presence of where God himself dwells in the midst of his people. He's going, as it were, into the, the visible physical chamber of, of heaven itself. There he goes. The high priest went into the holy place for me. Praise be to God's name. But he went without me. And that's what I would have thought. That high priest is going in for me. Blessed be God. But he is going in without me. We have a better hope. This passage tells us. By the which we draw nigh unto God. Now, in all of our prayer. And in all of our praise. And in all of the ordinances of worship. The true gospel believer is admitted into the presence, into the inner sanctum and chamber of of the presence of the God of all grace. Every believer is given immediate access to the throne itself, not just the picture of the throne in the ark on the other side of the veil with the cherubim over it in the mercy seat. No, no. The believer is actually really and truly able to come before the real thing. The throne itself. And to appear before God. And to do so without shedding any blood. Because it's already been shed. And sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come with an awareness that all approaches to God are by Christ alone, through Christ alone. To go back to the ceremonies is to say, "I'm not. I'm coming as it were through some human Roman pontiff or whatever. He, you know, that's I'm coming to God through that priest. That is a flagrant attack on the supremacy and superiority of Jesus Christ. It is a damnable heresy, and we should do everything in our power to defeat and destroy it." And to remove it from this world. Because everything's at stake. The salvation of souls, the salvation of the the church, and the glory of Jesus Christ are what we're talking about here. The Believer has privileges. We We are brought nigh unto God. What does that mean? You know, it means the heavenly life for the Christian. And I wish I had time to develop this, and I don't. But I'll give you a seed thought for your own meditation. The heavenly life of the Christian begins right here and right now. The heavenly life begins right here and right now. Not just when you die and your soul is made perfect in holiness and taken into the presence of God. Not just at the resurrection when your body is raised, incorruptible. The heavenly life begins right here, right now. And actually everything in the New Testament reinforces this. We're seated with Him in heavenly places, set your mind on things above where Christ is, et cetera, et cetera. We can multiply many, 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 many texts to reinforce this. But understanding that the heavenly life begins right here and right now under, under underlines for us the acute sense of privilege. Because you can have, you can read it in the Bible, you can read it in a book, you can hear a minister in the pulpit say it. You're given privileges. You're able to go right into the throne room of heaven and so on. Without ever having a taste of that. Without ever savoring it. Without ever experiencing the sheer delight of it. Without ever the profundity of it. Dawning on you. No, we need that. We need to have a sense, no, indeed... When we come in prayer, something stupendous is happening. This is truly incredible. I mean, here I am a sinful creature, fallen son of Adam. And I am able, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into the presence of the God of glory and to present my petitions before a throne of grace. And I'm doing so just as really and truly as the angels who are present in his presence before him at the same moment. To have a sense of that. What privileges are given to us? What Christ has accomplished? What better hope we have? What boldness we have? What confidence we have? What hope we have that the Lord indeed will hear our humble cries, receive them and answer them. This is a better hope infinitely better hope because it is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and there is none like him, none that can be compared to him. He is superior to all others. And so the Apostle Paul lays yet another layer down for us and for these early readers. Another layer down in teaching us That this Old Testament ceremonial system has been abrogated. It was abrogated because it was designed to be weak. It was designed to be weak in order to exhibit the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ who would fulfill it. And that with the coming of Jesus Christ, we have an infinitely better hope. That we cannot, will not, must not trade for anything else, past, present, or future. Let's stand together for prayer. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we hear the truth as it is in Jesus. We hear the word of God. That we can see, O oh Lord, that this is indeed the thy way and will bring home these truths with power to our own souls. Give us, O oh Lord, a sense of wonder and delight at being delivered from the yoke of the ceremonial system. Give us, O oh Lord, a sense of wonder and delight at all of the privileges that we have that so far surpass those shadows, the realities of the presence of Jesus Christ and of the access that we have through him. O Lord, grant that our hearts would be drawn out through these things, that we would be given to love and adore the Redeemer, to defend with all of our strength and blood, His glory, that we would, O Lord, uphold His gospel and His completed work, that we would live for it and die for it, all to His praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name.